Hey, it's Alana. And Jacqueline. And we're back for another episode of Black and Yellow. Hi, guys. Hope you guys have been keeping your heads up during this difficult celebrity suicide time. I know, right? We've been back-to-back Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain within, what, like, days of each other? Yeah. And it's really heartbreaking. Totally. And it's hard to decide, like, which one is harder to take. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think they each were so iconic in each of their own fields and affected so many people because of that. Um, And let alone them being married and having kids and all of that was was just another layer of uh, sadness and grief that I think most people were going through. For sure. I think in this, for us, for me, I'm a fashion blogger, so I think I took Kate Spade's passing pretty hard because she was so iconic and yeah. and so revolutionary and kind of a low-key feminist icon, though I don't ever know if she would consider herself a feminist, so to speak. Uh-huh. But what she stood for. Definitely. Was, the yeah. empire that she built pre-social media, the empire that she built uh, essentially yeah. like from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, think about it. She didn't have any connections yeah you know a lot of fashion not i'm not saying like i i mean i think nowadays but she started from nothing she started Mm -hmm. by us grabbing people coffee and being their bitch right (laughs) to put it nicely yeah and she was married to andy uh spade Spade. who i didn't realize was david spade's brother yeah i didn't know that right which he i mean i don't know how much uh connections he has by by his family but i know that like he had a huge um, say, or he had a huge um, a mark in what she did, because he helped her, because he was the one who was like, Suggested handbags, handbags. And she exactly. Was like, what the, what are you talking about? And he was like, no, like, let's do it. You right. Know? Yeah. And then, Anthony, I know yeah. you and your love of food. Yeah, I think that, remember when I woke up that morning and I texted mm-hmm. you? That was some, one of my friends had mess, texted me that. Oh. They knew that. I was a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. Right. I had met him through the the taste that my mom was on the show. Yeah, tell our viewers about that. Yeah, so my mom is, she's a chef. I mean, I consider her a chef. She's never gone to culinary school, but the quality of her food is restaurant quality. Yeah, yeah, restaurant quality. And so the taste was, Anthony Bourdain was a judge on the taste, and judge and a mentor on the taste on ABC um, for three seasons. And so it's essentially like the voice but the taste in a way Got it. Okay. where um, the, all the chefs um, make a spoonful, like a one bite off of a spoon. Like an amuse-bouche, like yes. just a taste. Yes, and so then all the chefs try it and they get like a whole complete taste and they have to see who are the winners and who are the losers. Got it. Yeah, it's wow. pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty unique, really di- kind of different, but a cool twist on it. It didn't last obviously for three seasons but my mom was like the star of season two great and i'm not just tuning her horn or my own horn she really was the Toot star. It. it's your mom um, she was amazing and so the way that the taste sort of comprised their chefs was they wanted like have to be like actual like restaurant tours like executive hat like on their resume like you know um and then they wanted the other half to be home cooks. Oh, cool. Sort of like no training, but still to show that like 
they've um, got the skills and their skills are just as competent as those that went to culinary school yeah. and have an extensive Which I thought was really cool because a lot of places, a lot of shows, a lot, I mean, less now, but they're like, if you don't, if you don't have, if you haven't been to the Cordon Bleu mm-hmm. or whatever, then sorry, we can't hire you. And it's like, no, you can, you don't, you don't have to necessarily go to film school to become a director. You don't necessarily have to go to acting school to become an actor. That's true. A lot of people have kind of just fell in. I mean, you know, Kate yeah. Spade, she didn't like go to fashion. Did she go to fashion school? Uh, I don't know, actually. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know if she went to fashion school or not. Anyways, it was just like, it was cool that they sort of supported this sort of idea of like, you don't have to follow those steps to become. Well, right, because isn't that how Rachel Ray? Yeah. She considered herself a cook. Right. As opposed to a chef and didn't necessarily have extensive Uh, culinary training. Right. Um, But I think my mom immigrating from Taiwan to Brazil to then America mm-hmm. sort of uh, cap- captivated this um, knowledge throughout all these years, mm-hmm. which is, is amazing. And she started cooking for her family when she, she was 12. Wow. She became like head chef of like the family when she was started at 12 because they, they owned a vegetable booth in Brazil. Cool. And uh, they had a lot of, I've, I think I've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast before, but they had a lot of like leftover vegetables they, they couldn't sell because they didn't look good, like the markets, oh, right? Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but they didn't want to throw it away. And so she ended up would take home these vegetables and start to like figure out how to make them work. Nice. Um, so she's been cooking. My mom is almost 60. So almost like she's been cooking for almost, like over 40, 40 years, wow. 45 years. It's a long time. It's a long fucking time. Yeah. Yeah. And Anthony Bourdain said her food was good, said her yeah, food was great. Yeah, he, um, uh, when the show aired, he just, on the show, he had said such great things about my mom. And he wasn't her mentor, The because f- by the time my mom had auditioned, Anthony's team was full. Ah, uh, And so it. she, the French guy, his name was Ludo, um, who's also a great chef, he picked her. And, um... But the I think the one chef that really recognized the qualities of my mother um, was Anthony. Good old Tony. Because um, my mom would say shit on the show like, yeah, I'll kill the animal and skin it and kill it and eat it. And that sounds it. like something Anthony would right. say. Right. And so I think he he started being like, holy shit, like she's a tough one. You know? Right. And, and she's a home cook and all this stuff. And she's a woman and she's Asian and all this stuff. And he's, his love for Asian cuisine has always been... You know, uh, known and like, Super. and like, if you were to ask him what would he want, he'd probably say some sort of Asian noodle dish for sure. Nice. Um, and so throughout when the show aired, my mom was like getting all like her her like Twitter would blow up and like it was, and he like tweeted twice about my mom, um, and he said some really great things. It was nice. so awesome. Yeah. So I think she felt a connection through that. But even before my mom went on the show, we would watch. No reservations. Mm-hmm. We watched Parts Unknown. We watched The Layover. A we, Cook's Tour. I think that was his first, his first foray into... Yeah, I don't think we ever saw that one. Okay. Um, but actually, since his passing, my mom went to, to, to see, and she was watching. I saw her watching a Cook's Tour the other day at home. It's wow. very old. He looks so young. Yeah. Um, but it was just like, just, wow, wow. He really, he had it since then, you know? Yeah, and I mean, Anthony Bourdain, in my opinion... Did a lot for ethnic cuisine. I think that so he much. put a very large, bright spotlight spotlight yeah. on ethnic cuisine. And um, his appreciation for it was so authentic and so pure. Mm-hmm. And I think that, obviously, the sort of food docu-series is that we now see are total copycats. Completely. He was the, he was the, the what do you call it, the driving force. The, he um, was the pioneer. He was the pioneer, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, because his show wasn't a cooking show. Like, Food Network already sort of had that yeah. uh, that formula down. Right. 
he almost wanted to sort of shine the light or like explore the intersection between food, culture, politics, and history. And he did that with every episode. I mean, you'd watch an episode and you'd learn about, like, you'd learn about the, the grandma, the, the old Italian grandma who still makes noodle by hand. Mm-hmm. You'd learn about something about Italians and how they were back in the whatever century. Yeah. You'd learn how they make their homemade wine, how they make their homemade charcuterie. And then you'd learn about the family dynamics and the relationship they had with each other. And it was just like you get you got stuff about history. You got stuff about family. You got stuff about politics. And it was... It's so entertaining. It makes for such a good, well-rounded show. And then on top of that, his narrative through the, the shows mm-hmm. and on and hearing how he goes and describes it is like no other. He had a gift for writing, that's for sure. Totally. If you haven't guessed, this episode <laughs> is completely in remembrance of Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. As an African-American girl, as an Asian girl, as ethnic women in general, um, Bourdain made people appreciate ethnic cuisine in a way that was genuine and in a way that was insightful. And so we're going to talk about that on this episode today. Yeah. He, I think he, he was, after his passing, I mean, I knew he was super influential, but I just, I didn't know how much of that was so, and just like maybe amongst my immediate circle, Mm -hmm. um, people were, you know, saying stuff like, you know, I, 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 when I was living overseas, you know, the I you supported like watching his shows got me living in Korea for this many years. Like mm. I went to journalism school because I watched your show. Mm-hmm. Like just things like that that I was like, wow, he really was one of the most influential celebrity chefs. And influential and differently. You know? Yeah. Like because I wouldn't say he had the same. I would say his influential is different from like a Mario Batali oh, or like and a he, Bobby like, Flay. And he would call them out. He is known for like ragging on Paula Deen, Bobby Flay, yeah. Rachel Ray, mm-hmm. which I get because they're all Food Network cookie cutters and it's never about the food anymore, you know? I remember him his his uh his really searing critiques of Paula Deen yeah. specifically right. about how her food was just like laden with indulgence and unhealthiness and, yeah. and her philosophy on cooking was not necessarily a sustainable one because it was going to clog your arteries. Right. She also had this one little controversy about how she actually got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. No shock. Two years before she actually announced it. Mm. And she waited to announce it two years later because she, her sons and herself were the head of this new type 2 diabetes drug. And so she waited to release it when that came out. And Anthony Bourdain tweeted, I, I I was like watching all his stuff after he passed and this came up and I was and this is so him he said oh yeah uh, don't quote me not word for word but he said along the lines of oh yeah let me get into the leg breaking business so I can sell some crutches oh you know what I mean like Ooh. he flat out is just like he tells it like it is yeah and that's what I loved about him he tells it like it is and he's not afraid he was fearless in the way he did it and, he, and even if he was fearless he he did it anyway. Yeah, you know I mean? for sure. He's so he's known to be sort of controversial in that way. Definitely. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about like the impact that Anthony had on food and people that want to be writers, people that want to get into this kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. I think he revolutionized the way writing, um, the way people write about food. Um, just a little history. He was working in a lot of restaurants in New York, and he's. He always had loved writing. Um, 
he was I think 44 or 45 don't I'm not exactly sure how specific it is but he was he was pretty old like mm-hmm. fame came late to him yeah. everything was super late right and the minute it, it came it like it, it like it hit, him. Yeah, it hit him completely shot through the roof um but he wrote this little one story piece mm-hmm. and he sent it to was it the New Yorker or the New York Times one or the two obviously the New York Times is way more um it's way bigger but his mom was an editor for the new york times for a while she was on the editing staff oh i did not know that yeah and so fascinating so i'm I'm guessing writing is in his genes right uh but he wrote this one little story and he couldn't get it published and his mom pushed him and said just send it send it to like wherever he sent it to and i think it was the new york times the new york post one of those something like that yeah and to his surprise they published it mm-hmm. and that led to him writing the um i think it was the la confident uh kitchen, kitchen confidential kitchen confidential um they published and then they and then they said oh he was so going back he was about in his late 40s and he was still couldn't pay his rent on time yeah he was an irrevocable debt yeah in his own words in his own words and then they said okay yeah we'll give you fifty thousand dollars can you write a book just like that out of that one story and getting like, and then to him it was like, holy shit! I've never been able to make money so fast and so easily. Right. They're doing things that I like, mm-hmm. you know. And he was also in, like a cart, like he liked like like also drawing. Oh. So he was really multifaceted and like talent. Yeah, in that way. Yeah. So New York Times restaurant critique Pete Wells um, cre- credits Bourdain with changing the practice of food journalism. Wow. I think that's where he most led left his mark was I don't think before Anthony Bourdain there was much of any kind of food journal if you think about it huh because Anthony Bourdain started getting his fame and getting all this stuff roughly about the age where I started actually watching TV and mm-hmm. becoming sort of like like Picking your your t- your taste in television. Yeah, and in a way, getting out of like I'm a kid and now I'm a teen and now I'm a teen. You know what I mean? Finding yeah. my way. And so he has sort of, uh, you know, there are things that you remember now as an adult looking up how like some things greatly impacted you or things you remember like the first time I watched this, the first time I read this, that one time I saw that one movie, it just sort of like shaped you, right? right? And so. I think before of all of that, I mean, not that I know of, because I've I've been around food. I've been around food shows. I've been around so much of food because of my mom my entire life since I can even remember. Uh, I and there wasn't there was no there was no food journalism. It right. was the Food Network. Yeah, those sort of mostly, like home cooks, live TV cooking show kind of things. Yeah, and it was like pot pies and uh, just. Bacon, casseroles. Every, yeah, thank you. Ugh. Casseroles and and cookies and like let's roast the vegetables and and just like really not very cultured and mm-hmm. very boring and expected and there was no um spiciness to it. Yeah, let's call it what it, it was very white. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, extremely white. And definitely and a, a lot of Funo work is still very white. Absolutely. Um, so that was probably the biggest thing is through his food journalism, although I know he didn't like to be called a journalism, but right. because he was so good at writing, of course he was a novelist and an author and all sorts of that, but because he combined that with food and, and history and politics, 
let alone having a platform and mm-hmm. then especially being on the Travel Channel and then being on CNN. Right. You know, he went to CNN after the Travel Channel um, said a lot about his, uh, his style. Exactly. Um, anyway, so Peter Wells um, credits wording changing the practice of food journalism by focusing on the people, most of them immigrants, mm-hmm. who washed the dishes and actually cooked the meals. Wells writes, Bourdain opened a new subject to the purview of food writing, immigration policy, labor conditions, racism. I think, yeah, you would, sh- you wow. would you'd really, do you have, you, sh- you have Netflix, right? Yeah, right. I mean, I've watched some of, I've watched more of No Reservations and a bit of The Cook's Tour. I've actually mm-hmm. never watched Parts Unknown. Yeah, I think it's better if you go through and then you pick like the places that you're interested in seeing. Not Got necessarily it. like watching the season one, because there's some places if you don't feel any, you know, like some places in Africa or some places that like really like have something, like a movement about women might mm-hmm. be really interesting for you. Um, when he went to... Russia. That was like a really tense episode. I never forget because he talks about the KGB and um, Putin and all this stuff. And it was really like that was the first episode that I remember thinking like, holy shit, he's traveling to some places where the politics there are completely different. Mm -hmm. And he feels it and he talks about it, you know, Um, and he and he talks about how traveling isn't as glamorous as it seems you know it can actually break your heart Mm -hmm. and it can make you feel a lot of pain and I think it makes me really sad because I think about like how much he has seen Mm -hmm. and and it's beautiful but in a way it's also really sad yeah because he that's he does focus a lot on the people and the immigrants and it's not a very pretty sight right And I think that's a really powerful statement that this critic made, because I think that here in our L.A. restaurant scene or even just maybe in our USA restaurant scene, there's such a focus on there seems to be a focus on fusion or like taking a pre-existing style of cooking and like putting your own spin on it. Mm -hmm. But I do appreciate Anthony for saying, no, 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 don't forget about where it came from. Yeah. Like you might charge $20 for pad thai but like over in Thailand we're like that's good street food that you can get at an affordable price so that you can feed the masses that's where this kind of cuisine started and those people are not to be forgotten not at all and and I think there's this whole cuisine here that it's glamorized and I think because he came from that yeah you know like I'm in the executive chef of a five-star Michelin restaurant and don't get me wrong there's such great art in that too but he came from sort of that world and he realized like that that's all maybe a lot of full of bullshit mm-hmm. and so I think part of his soul was sort of craving like this realness to like tell the truth yeah behind that, I do know? feel like there are times where food can sort of feel high flouting totally if you will um and I also think in our modern age where we not we we eat for Instagram if that makes any sense like we are so focused on what our food looks like as much as how it tastes Mm -hmm. it was refreshing to have someone like Anthony that was like look this might not not look pretty but it's fucking bomb yeah and everyone should be eating it yeah and I think that that's a really important reminder of that food is more than something that is uh 
to be photographed and posted on Instagram. Completely. Like they say they they eat you eat with your eyes first, right? Mm-hmm. But I also think like there's judgment. Yeah. You know, there's judgment behind like, oh my God, I think that's like really nasty and yeah. I'm not going to eat it. And it's like, fine, go pay fucking fifteen dollars for fucking avocado toast. Mm-hmm. I'm all right with that. Like yeah. you know, and 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 so I think he really educated and opened people's minds to that, especially because he's a white guy and he's yes. American. I'm glad you hit on that. I'm super <laughs> glad you hit on that fact because I think it would be, I think his show would have been very differently received if he were a minority male. Yeah, no way would he have. this kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I do think the fact that he is a, a, a very, a member of the very majority race and gender Mm -hmm. really speaks a lot because he was able to reach a wide range of ethnicities of ages of sexual orientations and he was able to speak to all of us in a way that was approachable in a way that wasn't didactic or preachy Mm -hmm. but also was really inspiring completely i agree i don't and you like you saying this right now like as you were saying this i was thinking in my head like there's no one like him no there is no one. There's a lot of copycats. Yes, but there is no one like him. Right. Who, who even like a white guy who's been able to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, because I think Mario Batali tried to do something very similar. Really? Oh, I don't like. Yeah, Mario I remember he had some sort of travel cooking show. I remember it because I remember Gwyneth Paltrow was also on this show, and I remember watching the first couple of episodes and kind of going. Okay, this is like rich white folks like traveling around the world eating cuisine that rich white folks would be interested in (laughs) eating and seeing. And look, there's nothing nothing against rich white people, but I do think that there was a a little bit of relatability that was lost. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In that show. Yeah. Um, Andrew Zimmern, I think, is another one that is trying to do something similar. He was up there with Anthony as far as, like, the times. Like, the time that they both kind of came out. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was on Travel Channel, too. But... Andrew Zimmern was a little bit more light. Yeah, if, if Anthony Bourdain was, like, the food patriarch, then I feel like Zimmern was, is like the... The goofy cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe like the the funny uncle. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Totally. I mean, look at him. He's like, he's a big teddy bear and you just want to like... Yeah, like, for sure. His cheeks. <laughs> for sure. And like, don't get me wrong, Zimmer definitely had his own difficult yeah, cool. backstory and upbringing, and, and that is not to be forgotten. Not at all. But I do think that they kind of come from two different ends mm-hmm. of the food spectrum, especially when it came to cultural delicacies. Yeah. I think cultural delicacies could be something that are hard to stomach, like literally and figuratively, <laughs> if you are not familiar or if you aren't uh, an adventurous eater, so to speak. Right. I certainly am not. Right. So there would be certain delicacies you struggle that I would 100% struggle with that after Anthony Bourdain like eating gizzards or innards of various innards. animals or drinking blood. blood of animals yeah um there was a part of me that was like okay maybe I could do that mm, probably <laughs> not but I I see what he, I see what you did there Anthony and I respect you for yeah. it 100% well what's great too is like a lot of the times you know, he's American, so I'm sure he... But it was just like he was meant to be, and he had the the the, the needs and the wants to go and explore and to actually have, like, a palate for that stuff. Mm-hmm. More so than his American food. Definitely. You know, which, which I think that, along with that, comes with culture. You can't be eating gizzard or blood and not 
be somewhere in Asia. Right. You ain't going to be in America. Or if you are, you're definitely going to be in a Chinese house right. or in an Asian house. Right. And I mean, like, Anthony taught us a lot of great little tidbits of knowledge just regarding, like, the way that we dine here in the U.S. Yeah. I've, I love that. He was always com- sort of comparing the two in a way. Same. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I, when he finally said this, I was like, fucking yes, someone gets me. When he said that brunch was a scam, <laughs> I threw my hands up like I knew I wasn't crazy. <laughs> I knew I was not a crazy B-I-itch. Like, I knew it. I'm just not a, I, I am not a breakfast person, but brunch has always been like a weird um, yeah, what the hell's that all about? And I think that was his point exactly as well. Yeah. Just, if you're going to eat at like 1130, just eat. Don't right. call it brunch. And don't get me wrong. Like I brunch with friends because yeah. it's more of a social thing. Yeah. But I'm always eating lunch. Right, right, right. When I brunch. Yeah. I, I don't do the like the, the love child between mm. breakfast and lunch. It's no, never no. been a thing. But he also taught me that I should never order fish like on a Monday, like never order the Monday fish special because you don't know how long that fish has been sitting there. The refrigeration uh, circumstances that that fish has sort of incurred. I never knew about the shipping and when the shipping and receiving of fresh foods Mm -hmm. in restaurants until Anthony Bourdain said something. But really, when he talked about brunch being a scam, I was like, finally, someone gets me. And and it's Anthony Bourdain. Like, that's the guy that gets me. Um, sorry, I cut you off. No, don't. You're all good. Don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, he, and I think things like that, like brunch is a scam, you know, like, let me get into the, like, breaking business so I can sell crutches. Like, thing, like, yeah. it was, it's so witty and smart and charming and it kind of, like, jabs you in just the right way. You're like, ooh, and then it's like, and there's so much truth. Like, he was all about telling the truth. And as mm-hmm. an artist, I I got that 100%. Telling the truth, your truth, is what artists do. Yeah, and I think a big part of his, his the ability for people to feel his truth and relate to it, I think came from the fact that he had a very difficult upbringing. He had yeah. a history of drug usage. A lot. In Kitchen Confidential, he owned that, like, part of the reason that he found himself in a restaurant, or as a chef, so in, in the back of the house, I guess I should say, is because it's sort of the last place for misfits and outcasts and bad mm-hmm. boys like that's sort of the last place that they can go to really be themselves but also excel and do good work yeah which was a, a thought that i had never that had never ever crossed my mind mm, that's interesting but um i think that people i think it's easier to relate to someone that we know has had a tough has also gone through some hardship yeah and addiction and struggle and and i mean he talked about how his depression was sort of like this inner monster that he just didn't want to really acknowledge but mm-hmm. he was there Right. Um, and he did everything. He did everything from meth to dope to coke to yeah. to codeine to marijuana. Everything. To, literally, he said they'd be walking into the walk-in freezer like on the dot. You know, yeah. they get high soaking mushrooms in honey so they could drink tea yeah. on their shift. Like, he, he, he went through it all. And I think... I feel like he also never downplayed the darkness. No, right? Like, we all knew that Anthony had some darkness in him. Yeah, I never forget this one thing. He, I think he was somewhere in Italy, and, like, they killed a pig, and then they ate it, and then, like, he was eating it, and the pig tasted so good, and he was like, oh, yeah, like, it tasted like it died screaming. And I went, fuck, yeah, this guy is dark. pretty morbid and dark, yeah. Right? Yeah. And 
say that something like that. Well, for sure. And as a, I think as a, a TV personality, as a celebrity, I think the bigger that you get, the more uh, cautious you have to be with your image. Like you can't be reckless with it. And I really appreciated that Anthony kept it real and was very mindful of what his image was, but mm-hmm. was also mindful enough to be like, yeah, okay, but I'm not going to filter out the authenticity for sake of my image. Sure, Where I think there are tons of celebrity chefs that have definitely gone on to do that. Yeah, because I think a lot of it, it wasn't the money for him, Mm-mm. you know? It wasn't necessarily even, I don't know, it was about telling stories. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's what it should be for every artist. For sure. And I think a lot of celebrity chefs get, like, they end up not really even telling stories, even with their dish. Like, what are what story are you telling me with this pasta dish? Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's like, let me just put these things together and have it taste like shit anyways. Yeah. You know? I think that we are And let me charge 100 bucks, point. by the way. For sure. And I think that we like reference points. Yeah. And, um... I feel like since sort of the invention of the foodie, I'm putting invention in quotes because I don't necessarily know if I, foodie is always one of those terms that I mm. kind of yeah, I agree. scoff at because mm-hmm. I've always thought, okay, well, chefs call themselves chefs, cooks call themselves cooks. What but the fuck is a foodie? What the, what the fuck is a foodie? You're someone that likes to eat. Yeah, and I and think take that, pictures and social media. Yeah, and you kind of get off on the fact that you've had a really expensive meal, a really hard to secure meal, yeah. or and I feel like that gives people who claim to be foodies some sort of um, our masturbatory excitement. Are uh, foodies known to also know how to cook? See, that's what I don't know. Because that's my thing. It's like, yeah, you're a foodie, but a lot. Of, that's my feeling that I get. A lot of like things I've seen on Instagrams, or a lot of people who are like, I think there's there are. I'm sure there are a couple that do know how to cook, but I don't know if majority. Because if you're gonna be a foodie, you shouldn't know how to cook with the, even the stuff that you might want to go out and eat in a way. I know? mean, being in the blogger world, there is some crossover between food bloggers, i.e., foodies, and and fashion bloggers. There is a little bit of crossover, and from what I can ascertain, I feel like foodie has always been like a catch-all term for people who are interested in food, but mm. not necessarily chefs. That is my assumption. I see. I That's just my pure assumption. I see. But I've more associated foodie to someone who like likes to eat, likes the dining process and the dining experience, and is more chasing uh, the next big thing in right. food. Trending also. Exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah. trendy. As opposed to creating it. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think. Okay. Don't kill me. Please. Yeah, uh, Anthony Bourdain, I don't think, was down with the foodie title. And um, there was a quote of his that I love regarding this. It was on his um, his approach to child rearing. And I love this quote because I think it encapsulates our feeling on the ridiculousness of the word foodie. But that quote is, The last thing you should ever try to do is to make your child a foodie. Nothing could be more annoying or more futile. <laughs> Praise to that. Like, Anthony, we could not agree with you more. Yep. I think, though, for me, one of the biggest things about Anthony Bourdain that I always just responded to, and it makes me think about our Dope by Default episode where we were talking about how black people are, like, naturally cool. Uh-huh. Um, Anthony Bourdain was just, like, a really fucking cool dude. Yeah. 
he drank and he smoked and he cursed like a sailor. He had a devil may care attitude. Mm -hmm. He wore largely the same sort of outfit when he traveled. Side note, he taught us that you only really need one outfit when you travel. Thanks for that, Anthony. Which is what? Um... I don't think it was like a, a formula as much as like he was essentially saying like you don't need a lot when you travel. Like you don't yeah. need a lot of different clothes when you travel. You need pants, shoes, shirt, maybe a top layer. Yeah. Because you can always mix and match yeah, and just yeah, rewear. Yeah. Um, but he was a, a cool dude. Yeah. And I think that he was a model of you can be cool no matter how old you are. Because mm-hmm. he just seemed to get cooler the older that he got. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that in our American culture, we associate cool with something that is reserved for young people. Mm Mm-hmm. We, we associate cool with something that is hip now. What's happening right now? Oh, we're on to the next thing. Okay, that next person is cool. Somehow he managed, managed to just stay cool. cool and relevant. Super relevant. Which is hard to do. Absolutely. Nowadays. Uh, nowadays. I mean, I think uh, this made me sad when he, he, so he, was married to this woman for almost 20 years and then he married that mixed martial artist. Yeah. Something Spencer? No, no, no. Anyways. Octavia. Yeah. Think yeah. So, I think yeah. I'm thinking of Octavia Spencer. Oh, um, <laughs> two different people. <laughs> really different. Um, but then he had a daughter with her mm-hmm. and I didn't think he was going to have kids. I don't and think he thought he was going to have kids. Because he, because of that, he stopped smoking, which I thought was wonderful. Um, and uh, he became a dad late. Yeah, well, like 50. Yeah, something. that's late for like American standards. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really late. Um, and he said that being out of the country, being away from his wife and his daughter for 250 days out of the year because he was filming took a, tr- took a big toll on their relationship. Definitely. It's a long time to be away from your family. Yeah. And that goes to show his commitment and his appetite yeah to want to tell these stories and to want to really have live this life yeah i think it also that i hear that and it also sort of makes me sad though in a way too because when we americans like something and want something we want more of it and we want it right now Mm -hmm. it's like sort of the downfall of blues singers like i kind of think of amy winehouse in a way Mm -hmm. in saying this where it's like we want more we want it sadder we want it harder faster Better. Yeah. Better than the first one. Yeah. And you got to think like that breakneck pace, someone's got to pay the price. Like someone's going without. And in this case, it was his daughter and it was his wife. It makes me sad too. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there are opportunities for artists to be like, no. For sure. I'm not going to sign this contract. For sure. I need a break. And if anyone could have done it, it was him. Absolutely. And I'm I'm not blaming him for anything. I'm just saying like that just showed his level of commitment to want to continue to do this kind of work i think it it also showed a bit of his addictive personality oh yeah you know what i mean totally because the thought that i'm having is like if you have an addictive personality like first it was drugs perhaps then it was drinking now it's segue to something healthier being work right you know what i mean because he cranked out a lot of work in a short period of time Mm -hmm. which is a feat for any working professional in the world today Yeah, for sure yeah, Anthony Anthony was definitely great uh, in, in the food world, but we would be remiss to not talk about his 
part in the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. He was a very vocal male advocate for the Me Too movement. This was obviously later on in life when uh, the Harvey Weinstein uh, (laughs) Meshigas broke and um, actresses were seemed to be coming forward every single day, multiple times a day, to talk about Harvey Weinstein and the the terrible treatment that they were subjected to. One of those actresses was Asia Argento, who was Anthony Bourdain's girlfriend up until his passing. Okay. Um, you might remember Asia Argento. She was in Triple X, that Vin Diesel movie. Yeah. From the early 2000s. I loved I that movie. I think I watched it like at least five times. I think that's that's the movie that I know her best from. Don't oh. get me wrong. She's been working since she was a kid. She was in the circus when she was a kid and has been doing TV and film for for decades. Um, but I think that's the the movie that I remember the most. Beautiful. She is beautiful. Uh, and a really like alternative Sort look. of like perfect for him. Yeah. Heavily tattooed. Yeah. Very well spoken. Sexy little accents. And um, she, I believe, was raped by Harvey Weinstein. <gasps> yeah. And uh, she gave a really powerful moving speech at Cannes about his oh, allegations. I, yeah, if I anyone that. doesn't know what Cannes is, the Cannes Film Festival, it's like... A huge international film festival in where France. In, in France, France. <laughs> in Cannes, uh, where movie stars from all over the world go and debut new projects. Fashion, or, yeah, like it's a it's a catch all for mm-hmm. celebrity fashion, big, film. super international, definitely. And Harvey Weinstein was always there because of it's the Cannes Film Festival. And I'm sure he did a lot of his um, like perspective scouting of. Yeah. of actresses to rape or sexually harass uh there but anyways um Bourdain became a very vocal male advocate and uh I'm just gonna read you a couple of quotes regarding his work in the Me Too movement so he says quote in these current circumstances one must pick a side I stand unhesitatingly and unwaveringly Mm -hmm. with the women not out of virtue or integrity or high moral outrage as much as I'd like to say so but because late in life I met one extraordinary woman with a particularly awful story to tell who introduced me to other extraordinary women with equally awful stories he went on to say right now nothing else matters but women's stories of what it's like in the industry I have loved and celebrated for nearly 30 years and our willingness as human beings citizens men and women alike to hear them out fully and in a way that other women can feel secure enough oh my and my phone is just keeling out on me Uh oh sorry take it while i get this uh quote back up all good uh i that doesn't surprise me at all yeah yeah he he was pretty outspoken and i think that i think having a daughter on top of that uh probably infuriated that even more um and he had never it's so interesting because he has this sort of like bad boy image and his addictions but yeah. along the times a lot of times that bad boy image and that sort of like feeling comes with like degrading women or mm-hmm. we assume you know but he had he never had anything anything to do with tearing women down or or having that bad boy image be be harmful to women in a way yeah i mean cuz he definitely st- straddled two different worlds the culinary world and the entertainment world Mm -hmm. so you've got to assume that he was rubbing shoulders or elbows do you rub shoulders or elbows shoulders with both both um i rub knees (laughs) (laughs) 
he was he was interacting with famous well-known celebrities. Yeah, and he's an older white male, so I'm sure there were some younger chicks throwing themselves at him. I'm sure. And you never heard anything. I mean, the, right. I just told you the latest one, Morgan Freeman. Like, what's that all about? Oh, man. You know? Yeah. Like, when you reach a certain level of fame and power and you're a man, regardless, right. Anthony was white, Morgan Freeman's black, but still, mm-hmm. uh, you, I, something would have come out and nothing did. And, and, and because... I think he would just would never be that kind of guy. Totally. Okay, so here's the rest of the quote. So I think I left off at, and our willingness as human beings, citizens, men and women alike, to hear them out fully and in a way that other women can feel secure enough and have faith enough that they too can tell their stories. We are clearly at a long overdue moment in history where everyone, good-hearted or not, will have to look at themselves. The part they played in the past, the things they've seen, ignored, accepted as normal, or simply missed, and consider what side of history they want to be on in the future. Mm, Yeah. That's beautiful. Definitely. So I think Anthony really was calling out men in that particular quote and saying, like, we are just, we are accountable and we have to look at our actions to not only not have this happen in the future, but how we can best serve women. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like a ton of celebrity men were coming forward and saying statements like this. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And one could argue or assume like, oh, well, it's kind of dangerous to come out and speak uh, in tandem with the Me Too movement if you're a guy because you could put your career at jeopardy. Right. And Again, it's another reason why I have a lot of respect for someone like Bourdain, who's like, no, this is a a thing that is happening that we men are responsible for, and we need to do our part, which is speaking out and advocating for these women who are going through this shitty, these shitty situations. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, He also had one last quote that I just wrap this particular portion of the podcast out he said i had to ask myself given particularly given some things that i'm hearing about the people i'm hearing about why was i not the sort of person or why was i not seen as the sort of person that these women could feel comfortable confiding in i see this as a personal failing right like really introspective in that moment and perhaps a reason why women didn't go to him is because he did have that bad boy sure do you know what i mean Alongside someone like um, Mario Batali, who recently, or I guess semi-recently, had allegations brought against him, or Ken Friedman, so interesting, uh, who was a restaurateur that had allegations brought against oh. him. I don't think that it's crazy for someone like Anthony Bourdain to have not been uh, a confidant for these women. Yeah, yeah, I see that. But totally. I also admire his ability to be open about it. Yeah, and like obviously the pain in that kind of question. Because yeah. that's a real question to be asked. Yeah, and I think he's sort of just self-reflecting mm-hmm. in that and seeing what it is. And I'm sure he has his own thoughts behind that as to maybe why he's not as approachable or all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think he, all around, I think he was such an original, just truly an original, right? extremely authentic, so unique. Mm-hmm. And I think we lost... Uh, I was telling my mom this the other day, like, I'm not that I'm surprised that he hung himself, but I'm not surprised he hung himself. Oh, why? There's just part of me that, like, I don't know. Some people were saying that it's kind of, like, 
I'm sure there are conspiracy theories behind this of like sure. that maybe he didn't hang himself, maybe he was like murdered, all this stuff. But like, we're, I'm not not necessarily that he hung himself or that he killed himself. I am not surprised that he like left the world like like that. You're not surprised that he succumbed, 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 succumbed to the darkness that was inside of him. Yeah, got it. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Right. I can understand. And then that it almost makes everything thinking. that he did and left even more of a of a stamp of a of a of a ground because. We're never going to get more of him. No. Yeah. And there's never going to be anyone like, like him. him. No one. No. no one. Many will come and many will try. Yeah. But I don't think that we're ever going to get another Anthony Bourdain. He was once in a lifetime for yeah, sure. He was for sure. He was truly, truly someone, someone special. And I just hope that wherever his spirit, his spirit will always be around everyone. But I think, I hope he's just free, you know? Yeah. Definitely. And food and the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. an advocate of women, an advocate of food and the people that are cooking these, these this delicious cuisine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He will always be remembered. Always, no matter what. So, Anthony, this episode is for you. Rest in peace. We miss you. Rest in peace. Take care of yourself, guys. If you are going through a tough, dark, depressing time, reach out. Please don't, as Rose McGowan would say, please don't seek a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. Um, if you need help, reach out. The National Suicide Lifeline is there for you. Yep. Friends, family. Yeah. Talk you, about it. If you have friends that you think might be depressed, you go to them, ask them how they're doing. Oh, you know, yeah. Because a lot of times they won't go to you. That's true. Yeah. Don't be afraid to be that person to ask the tough questions. Yeah, take them out for coffee. See how they're doing. Call them up. Yeah. Shoot them a text. You never know. You, you just never know. And I think if you have people that you love in your life that I feel like you might have a sense that they might not be the healthiest in mental health, then then just reach out. Agreed. It doesn't hurt. I, I totally agree. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. This episode was produced by Christian Humes at Zeitheist. We are the Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to find us on Instagram, you can find us at Black and Yellow Podcast. I am Alana Webster at Renegade of Fun on the gram. My handle is Jacqueline Chung Young. And let us know any thoughts, concerns, comments. We'd love to hear from you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. One love, guys. Stay woke. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.